I investigate the toxic stuff. I've been coaching bullies for over 20 years. When I get called to coach the bully, one of the things that I always say is, is the person worth saving? I like coaching people that the company believes in. And here's the thing about bullies. They tend to be really good at what they do which is why they haven't been fired so far. But I always say when you have a toxic workplace and you're ready to address it, then we can talk. But if you're just like, well, we don't want to hurt their feelings. I'm like, are you truly prepared to address the issue? And that means accountability. That means the crappy behavior stops now. And all your other partners have to be willing to gently, professionally call it out. As the coach, I'm the mirror. My job is to help people see how others see them. And they will fight me until they go, are you telling me people are afraid to work with me? And I'm like, yeah. And these are the reasons why, but I can help you. It's building that psychologically safe environment where you can nurture people at all levels where vulnerability and empathy are core values within the organization. That to me is leadership. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today has spent over 20 years helping employers create and maintain safe and respectful work environments. She is a workplace trainer, coach, and employment lawyer who is a nationally recognized expert on harassment, discrimination, and investigations. She is also a top-rated speaker and has appeared on PBS, CBS This Morning, and in O Magazine discussing workplace harassment issues. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Allison West. Allison, it is wonderful to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So, Allison, before we start, I like asking guests to start their interview off with something they're grateful for. And I know it's super early in the morning for you right now. What time is it? It is 8.16. It's 8.16 in the morning, but I'm still going to challenge you to answer it. What would you say is your favorite moment today so far? Favorite moment was being able to look outside and see my garden, which has already started blooming here, which is really nice. That's awesome. What do you grow? So all different flowers. I haven't gotten into the vegetable piece. I have a lot of orange and my white flowers are blooming, which they resisted for the last year. And then all of a sudden in December, they started kicking in and now they're in full bloom. What a great way to start your morning. I also have not gotten to the vegetable fruit piece yet. <laughs> But I am a big herbs gal and I love mint, rosemary and thyme and all the things that also keep mosquitoes away. I do have a lemon tree and I've been waiting for years. It takes about seven years, but I have about seven potential lemons that are several inches big. And I'm like, every day I'm talking to them. So that's my goal. That's my dream to have a lemon tree, but I live on the East Coast. And so it's almost impossible to have that happen here. But lemons are my most favorite thing. I have bags and bags of them that I buy. I put them in everything, my tea, my water, my food, everything. Thank you for sharing. What a lovely way to start the episode. In addition to that, I thought it'd be fun to share with our listeners a really interesting fact, which is that we both actually have similar lawyer origin stories. I don't know if you remember when we first talked about this, but we realized we were both women who never thought about being lawyers before, but then found ourselves exposed to legal practice through administrative and secretarial temp jobs. So I was wondering if we can just start there because I thought that was so cool. Can you share with our listeners your journey from temp to lawyer? Sure. So I went to school in University of Colorado Boulder. And then two days later, I had an apartment in San Francisco and I was a communications major, never really knew what I wanted to do and sort of floundered and 
did temp work. I was interested in radio, TV, and film because that was my degree and couldn't get a job. Wound up doing some work in the consulting field, more entry level research assistant, not really for me. And then I wound up doing more temp work and I worked at a law firm for a solo attorney as a secretary. And I have a an outgoing personality. My typing skills, not so refined, right? <laughs> so fast, but the clients liked me. And I left after a year and I went to a small law firm that had 10 attorneys. I was there about two days and one of the lawyers said to me, look, you seem to have a brain. We're going to trial. Would you like to help us? And I literally looked at my watch and I said, I got nothing else to do. So he taught me how to be paralegal and I worked with expert witnesses. And I was also older. I was in my late 20s at this point. So he took me under his wing. And then after a year, I left that firm and I went to a bigger firm to be a paralegal. And then after I went to an even bigger firm and the original guy said, you should go to law school. You should go to law school. And I'm like, do you know me? I kind of partied my way through undergrad. <laughs> and it's like, I believe in you. And I applied. I got accepted. And in that fall of 90, I worked full time and I went to law school at night for four years and I would run to class. We had class four nights a week for the first two years. It was quite the ride. That was when I was 32. So I didn't become a lawyer until I was 36, 10 years older, really, than many of the first year associates that I was in class with. I love your story. I can relate in a lot of ways. I wasn't quite 36, but I was 30 when I graduated from law school. Also felt like I had taken a very untraditional path. What kind of advice would you give to someone who feels like they're maybe not on the right timeline? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, I have given that advice to HR professionals, you know, because I'm an employment lawyer. So HR professionals who I meet, who see me speak at conferences, they will write to me privately and say, hey, like, I love what you do, but I'm not sure. I'm too old. I have a family. And so I will mentor them. They'll be in their 30s, 40s, 50s going to law school. So I always like to think of myself as the poster child of having the route that was circuitous. It went up and down and all around. And I tell people that you can bring so much by the journey that you have been on in your life. And I think of someone, she had three kids. We kept in touch for a long time. She finally went to law school at night, struggled to pass the bar, California, New York, the toughest in the country. And she just kept hanging in there. And she's been practicing now for a couple of years. And it's like such a joy. But I always tell them, you get where you get when you get there. I tell this to young people too. You're 18 you're 19, you don't have to know what you want to be. And I've had a lot of different times of my life where I'm like, I want to be X. I want to be Y. My parents, when I told them I was going to law school, I have the most loving, caring parents. They were both on the phone and they laughed. They were like, oh, that's funny. I'm like, no, 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 really. They're like, well, power to you. You're paying for this one. I won the Amjur in writing and research my first semester. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I can do this. So I Share with people, don't be afraid of the journey because it's yours and you get to define it. I became a mother at 45. I adopted my son from Belarus. I bought my first house at 48. I'm a late bloomer, but look where I am today. So I love my journey, just like you love yours, right? You can embrace where we've been, but it's mine and no one gets to define my journey for me. I love that. I think that only recently I started to embrace that concept. Perfect, Seagal. That's great. For a long time, I was embarrassed of it. I thought, yeah. you know, this isn't what I was supposed to do or what I should be doing. And I try not to use those supposed and should words anymore. I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've learned, <laughs> learned not to use those words anymore. I think especially now, there's a lot of people that are reassessing, pivoting, changing what they want to do and starting to realize that, yeah, we have to own our own journey and we can do different things in different timelines. And I think that's super important. Why do you think that mentoring is so important to you? Mentoring is important because it is a gift we both receive from those who mentor us. And it's a gift we can give to others. When you talk about being grateful, right? I get to share to people and maybe they will be able to see something different in their own life. Don't forget the thing about being a mentor and people don't really think about this is I learn from every mentee. So this is not a unilateral relationship. I learn from the way people have their journey. So there's a little bit of selfishness in it in being a mentor because like, wow, I would have never thought of that. That was great. So just gifts. Thank you for that. So you go from temp to lawyer, you're mentoring people along the way, you're owning your own journey. If you can just share with our listeners a little bit about what your life looks like now. What I do currently is I spend a lot of time doing harassment prevention training, which is really a passion of mine. I'm preparing today to deliver leadership training tomorrow focused on communication skills. Next week, I'll talk about how to be a good coach, which is really something lacking in the legal field. It breaks my heart. It's such a great opportunity to grow people as a leader and a manager. And then I'm also an investigator. So I investigate harassment, discrimination. I tend to come in at the higher level. So right now I'm doing a CEO investigation, which is very intense. I also do a lot of public speaking, unemployment law, and I am a coach, which is really one of my favorite things. I coach executives who misbehave. And if anyone in your audience thinks that people have been behaving during the pandemic, they will be incredibly surprised because I've had 14 new clients just this year alone, like CEOs, chief marketing officers, people who go to the new sales kickoff meetings that are happening now, and they're drinking too much. They're hitting on people. I have one guy who somebody was wearing a t-shirt that said, badass developer, and he just took his fingers and he pressed her breast on those words on her chest. It's like, uh, what were you thinking? So I spend a lot of time coaching and doing regular kinds of executive coaching, leadership coaching too. And I love it. That's my passion. You've talked about always loving training. And then you've also since then become both a trainer and a speaker. And I did a little bit of research before this talk, and I heard you say that there's a difference between training and speaking. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it can be semantics to some but when I'm a speaker, I'm delivering a message to an audience and it's not as tailored. I happen to be known around the country for a program called Seven Steps for Creating Bulletproof Documentation. I mean, one of the more boring areas of employment, how to properly document. But you try to give tips and you try to help educate. Training is a much more drilled down way of messaging and you're able to call on the audience. It's very hard when I'm speaking in front of a thousand people. I can't call on people. I can't get that personal kind of connection as much. So training is a much more drilled down, example-based, related to the company. I've already spent a couple of hours talking to my client. Tell me some of the nuances, right? And so as a speaker, I can challenge an audience in general, but I don't get to hear their answers. Training is very personal. That's interesting. What would you say is probably one of the biggest things law firms and legal institutions need from a training perspective. So California just has a new law um, or part of our new rules of professional conduct, which is if you are at a law firm and you have harassed one of your clients or within the firm, 
Like now it has to be reported. I mean, it's a whole new game, right? So I just wrote to one of my clients yesterday. Why? Because I had coached one of their partners who had harassed a vendor and had made other inappropriate comments. Had that happened today, a whole different thing for this partner, a whole different outcome, reporting, probably investigating, et cetera. So very interesting. So for law firms, just spending more time doing effective training, it has to be more practical. I was lucky to be at firms that did spend the time to drill down and give us some more practical training on what to do. What would you say is some of the biggest mistakes that you see executive level leadership make? Oh, they don't create psychological safety within their organizations. And that is classic at law firms. Talk to me about psychological safety. Harvard professor Amy Edmondson, I always like to give her a call out, is the researcher behind this. And what it really means is that you create a safe environment where people can make mistakes. You're the partner on a case and I can say, you know what, Skull, I've researched and I'm confused how to approach this motion for summary judgment. I know what the issues are, but the cases are so close or whatever. But meaning, can I ask you without you judging me going, you're a fifth year. What the hell are you asking me for? How do you not know this already? And that this would jeopardize my chance of partnership or trust. That psychological safety is really key. And we don't spend time in many organizations to check in. It's built on empathy. It's built on vulnerability, what builds trust. And so in most law firms, they don't build a trusting relationship. So that psychological safety isn't there for someone to say, you know what? I want to be on a partner track, but right now, due to family obligations, I really need to do three-quarter time, which we all know means full-time. Look how women have historically been penalized for that type of self-care and how men are looked at, oh, you're staying home to take care of your kids? Like, what is wrong with you? I think it's changed. I think it's gotten better, but certainly not safe enough. So that psychological safety starts at the top. What are some of the things, like some practical advice that you would give to leadership on how to start creating that psychological safety for others? So part of it is the messaging to talk about culture, to say, look, we're focused on, you know, diversity and equity. But the most important piece is belonging, that people feel that they can belong. And we want people to feel that they can come to us and share what their journey is or what they need on their journey. So it's the messaging, it's having meetings, and it's living up to the values of the organization. And you know what? There are firms who live up to it. Look at the ones that are rated top places to work, firms that really look at how to be innovative, create good psychological safety and good mental health for their lawyers. Not like it can't be done. Agreed. And there are a lot of firms out there that are doing the work and that are great examples to look to. So I want to get back to the work that you're doing. And I have a very specific question for you and get a little bit more focused. So you're kind of more on the corporate side of things, right? My work is all neutral. So meaning, yes, I'm hired by employers to do their training. I'm hired by employers to do investigations, but I am independent in that. So as an investigator, client tells me what the facts are. I sometimes need guidance, like who are the key players? Who do you think may have more information? But I run the investigation as to who I talk to, when I talk to them, what I need. But for training, I work with the client and I do manager training up to the C-suite or the partner level. So it's just going with what their issues are, but I'm neutral. Take me through that for a second. So you have two different kind of sections of your work, right? You have your training sections where you're training executives on specific things, perhaps after an incident happened or preventative. 
Yes. So meaning like I'll do communication training, coaching, performance management. So from an investigations perspective, who is that client? What are they coming to you for? And what are the resolutions that people are looking for? So I'm always retained by the client just because I have to create an attorney-client relationship. But usually it's the company lawyer that will reach out to me. So I typically would do harassment, discrimination, retaliation kinds of claims, other kinds of misconduct, bullying. I've done some financial. It's not my expertise, but meaning I can look through timesheets. I can look through expense reports. And then maybe if there's a computer issue, we'll bring in a forensic expert. So sometimes it's a multi faceted type of investigation. It could be at a very high level, like the CEO investigation that I'm working on right now. When it's a CEO, like I report to the special committee of the board. Got it. So you're retained by someone within the organization where there's been an incident and someone either at a high level has been accused of something inappropriate, whether that's discrimination or harassment or something of that nature, and you're brought in to figure out what happened. Right. So I investigate and I follow the facts. And at the end, I make a finding. Sometimes it's just doing the fact finding and the company will make a finding. But at the end of the day, I have to decide whether it is more likely than not that the conduct either occurred or didn't occur. Preponderance of the evidence is my guiding star. So that's what I do. I don't make recommendations. I used to early on, but it can have a bias effect that now I'm really trying to help them. So I don't do recommendations. I give my findings. They may have me write a report and then I go off into the sunset and they are left to do whatever they do. I don't know what happens. I'm curious sometimes. I'll be honest with you. I'm like, oh, I wonder if they fired that person because I found they did terrible things. But unless I run into the lawyer or something, like I don't know what happens. So you're really working on cases that could potentially affect people's lives. If a finding comes and a corporation makes a recommendation to, let's say, fire someone, this could have huge effects on this person's career and their credibility. How do you deal with the gravity of these types of cases? I always say, The reality is if you don't have a little heartburn when you're making your findings, like you're not doing it correctly because people get fired. These can be very public cases. If I'm working on a matter and someone in the C-suite gets terminated, it could impact if it's a public company. There's a variety of things that happen. And so I have to be very precise and pretty confident that I've put together a puzzle that I can really see as much of what the picture is as possible. So it is a weight on the shoulders. I feel tremendous weight on my shoulders. Am I making sure to talk to everybody? Am I asking the right questions, which I do for every investigation, but there's a weight to it. And I have investigator colleagues that I trust. We are under the umbrella of our privileges and we do the pinky promise. And it's like, can I run this by you? And I had to do that last week with a colleague. I said, I'm just stumped as to how I want to proceed. And I just need to hear myself say it to someone who knows what I'm going through. And it was very helpful. It's hard to do it in isolation. Yeah. And it brings back what you said earlier about this idea of psychological safety. It seems like you've created this circle of people that you can speak to in a safe way to help guide you in these difficult times when you're dealing with these high level cases. Wow. I never looked at it that way. And I'm so happy you said it. Like I just had a calming, like on my inside, I went, oh, that's exactly what it was. I knew my friend wouldn't judge me. She would push back and go like, well, I want to give you the other side, like why you might want to consider X. And I'm like, yeah, I did, but I hadn't looked at it from that lens. I was looking at it from this lens. And then she might say to me, oh, well, now I understand why you want to do that, right? So we can go back and forth. I mean, it's very heady 
And I think people don't often think that there's a real strategy at times with an investigation and how it's done. And if somebody already has info, do I just go right to the other person? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a dance. So yeah, it was very safe for me to be able to ask questions. So what advice would you give to organizations that are dealing with an investigation or dealing with leadership that is, for lack of a better word, toxic to the rest of the organization and they're looking to make a change? Well, two different things. So like I investigate the toxic stuff and I've been coaching bullies for over 20 years. But when I get called to coach the bully, one of the things that I always say is, is the person worth saving? And sometimes they're like, oh, huh, good question. Click, right? Look, I like coaching people that the company believes in. And here's the thing about bullies, and this is often true in the legal field, is they tend to be really good at what they do, which is why they haven't been fired so far. But I always say, look, when you have a toxic workplace and you're willing and ready to address it, then we can talk. But if you're just like, well, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't. I mean, I remember early on in my coaching career being called into a national law firm to coach a partner. And they're like, look, we don't want to hurt her feelings. We don't really want to tell her what the complaints have been. I'm like, how will she fix anything? And when I met with her, she was very tough. And she just said, I will give you one hour of my time. And I kind of got it because she didn't have any background info. And I told these partners, and they were all men, like, you cannot help anyone if you don't give them the info. And sometimes they want me to do it, which I think is the chicken way out, to be quite candid. I had a law firm, beloved law firm client of mine. I've been doing their work for 17 years. They wanted me to talk to one of their partners because she whined too much. She was a whiner. And it was coming through in interviews. So people would hear her in the interview. Oh, I work every weekend. I know it's this. So they were having trouble hiring associates. And I said, you would save a lot of money if you just told her yourself. No, no, we can't. Uh, no, like it'll hurt the relationship. So of course I didn't. And she was very upset. Why didn't they tell me? I said, I think because you don't make it safe for them to give you feedback, right? So I have to be able to be very candid and direct with people. And so what I tell them when they ask about the toxic, I'm like, are you truly prepared to address the issue? And that means coaching. That means accountability. That means the crappy behavior stops now. And all your other partners have to be willing to gently, professionally call it out when it happens. And unless you're willing to do that, like... You know, I'm happy to take people's money. I mean, I work for a living. I love making money, but I'm like, just fire the person then if you're not willing to put in the time. Oh, no, they're valuable. Okay, if they're valuable, then let's give them the feedback. And I'm the mirror, right? As the coach, I'm the mirror. And my job is to help people see how others see them. And it is not easy. And they will fight me until they go, are you telling me people are afraid to work with me? And I'm like, hallelujah. Like, yeah, that's what I've been saying for two hours. And these are the reasons why. But I can help you. And that's not easy to hear, right? Even the most self-aware, enlightened, you know, growth-oriented person, it's not an easy thing to hear when g given, you know... Constructive. <laughs> constructive criticism, right? And I don't know if you've ever read Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, but it's like one of the most incredible books that talks about the idea of you have to be radically candid with people in order for them to grow, but it first starts from a place of trust. So I'm hearing you say these partners or these C-level executives want you to coach this problem person, but they're not willing to do it themselves. And then you have to go to someone and say, well, they're not really facilitating psychological safety, but we expect you to be this way moving forward. How do you deal with that kind of dichotomy? Yeah, well, you're also talking about hypocrisy in many ways, yeah, right? Like, absolutely. Actually, I just really push them to do it. 
And I said, let me guide you. Let me help you. Let me tell you how to do it. Let me coach you how to give that feedback. And let me tell you why it's so important for them to hear it from you because you have more power than I do. And it's hard. There's times where I will still give pieces of information, but I really push them. And it's all about accountability. And it is about being candid. I want to just give you a very funny, quick example. Someone who's in, not in the legal field, but a partnership structure. So like very equitable. And so this guy, they did an investigation. And these are just three of the words that the investigator found. And I don't have to say more because everyone in your audience will already know this person. Belittling, demeaning, condescending, right? Like we've all... <laughs> so when I coach them, similar to how you often start to tell me your journey, I say, tell me why you think you're here. Because I want to make sure it's aligned with because sometimes they're like, I'm not really sure. So he tells me why he thinks he's there. And he said, look, I just want to let you know that compassion is a core value of mine. Now, had I been drinking, Seagal, I literally would have like spit it out into the camera. And I looked at him and I said, no, no, actually, no, that's, that's not true. Because I know you got the same document that I read, right? That belittling, demeaning, condescending. I said, here's the thing. Let me help you align how you see yourself with how others see you. Notice I said it very softly, right? I use my voice. I use every part of who I am as a coach. And this is what they, in 99% of the time, they're like, oh, okay, you can help me. Because how you see yourself, is not aligned with how everybody else sees you. Gotta say. And there's also a distinction between how you want to be versus how you are. And that happens so often in law firms, right? Because you want to be the star, the legal brain. You want to be the one who cracks the code. You want to be the one who like wins the case. So all of that is very inbred into being at a law firm. It's all about success. Nobody wants to be the loser. It's this whole win-lose dichotomy. I just attended a 40-hour mediation and conflict resolution training, which is not the caucusing back and forth. It's always having the parties in the room. And That's something that can be so helpful at law firms. Let's talk about it in the room. It's the way more difficult path, but it's the way more effective path. Because you talk about interests. You talk about goals. It's more collaborative. So we've talked a lot about leadership. What does leadership in law mean to you? It's building that psychologically safe environment where you can nurture people at all levels, an environment where vulnerability and empathy are core values within the organization. So that to me is leadership. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? I think it would be to be more self-reflective and be curious why people are leaving, be curious why people are staying. Be curious what they need. So up the curiosity. I love that. What is a piece of practical advice that you would give to our listeners looking to follow your lead? I think the best advice I can give people is to be open to opportunity. I knew my strength in training and I found a way to be able to create that in the field of employment law and have that be my passion. So I get the best of both worlds. So being open to possibility is the most important thing that I would give to your listeners, because I think so often we're on a path and we think it's the only path. And if you have some passions out there, see where you can put that into play. I remember someone in San Francisco, they just loved art and they created a part of the San Francisco Bar Association like art law and are doing it, right? I really love the last few answers to your questions because they all connect for me. Um, This idea of being open to opportunity, being self-reflective enough to be able to connect those dots, but also 
giving yourself the psychological safety to not judge wanting a different path. That's right. And I think so many lawyers, I've talked to so many who are like, oh, I wish I had gone into this or that. So take a breather, take a step back and look into that. You know, I get people have family obligations and things, but then think of other ways. I mean, I try to, of course, encourage people to go into employment law. It's like recession proof. It's a great area, but there's so many different ways to practice law or to use your legal background. What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you specifically do? I think sometimes they think that because I'm hired by the employer, that that's my leaning or something. And I do expert witness work, but all of the matters that I've testified in have always been on behalf of the plaintiff. So I really love that burden of proof. Totally dig that. So it's different from having been a defense attorney 20 years ago. So I think they don't understand what neutrality means and that you can actually do it, which is why I get so annoyed seeing law firms who jumped on the investigation bandwagon because they still have defense mentality and I see it in their investigations. So how do you approach neutrality? How does that work for you? You have to not have any vested interest in the outcome. When I mentor new attorneys who are now new to investigations and they'll call me and they'll say, oh, I was trying to save the client money. And I said, step away from the table. That is not your job. If they give you a budget, you stay within the budget. If you need to go over, you tell them this is what I need to do. You either approve it or don't approve it. This is the downside if it's not approved. So it's just making sure I am true to what my goal is, which is to make a finding and I'm independent. And in fact, in my current investigation, I had to say to the general counsel, look, I really appreciate when you give me some of your viewpoints, but I need to ask you to stop. I can separate it, but there's been a few comments. I need you to talk to your other lawyers about it. Please don't include me in the conversation. Putting down those boundaries. Yeah, I have to put up the guardrails. It seems like you have a very good grasp of, you know, the parameters of what needs to be done, the facts that need to be assessed without feeding into the drama. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that some of those stuff isn't helpful, but I have to be very careful because I'm the one who will be on the witness stand if something goes sideways. And I have to be able to say, nope, I didn't have these kind of conversations or yes, we did. And this is why I talked to counsel after every interview. That's what they requested. They are the client. They get to dictate under the rules of professional conduct how often I communicate with them. I'm an active member in the Association of Workplace Investigators, a plug for us. I'm one of the original 50 members. I've spoken at more than half of their conferences. So I stay up on this all the time. And that's what it takes. So on the note of neutrality, but also kind of balancing that with this idea of, that we were talking about earlier, about the gravity of things, having that weight on your shoulders, how do you approach your self-care practice? My gardening and walking. I live two blocks from the beach, so I'm very lucky to be able to walk. And we've got hills and bluffs and I get to go outside and I talk to other people and I listen to a lot of podcasts on things that have nothing to do with what I do. A lot of leadership. You know, I just I take care of myself. I plan vacations. So when I went to that mediation training, they talked about meditating for mediators and how important it is for balance. So I'm going to incorporate more meditation in as well. Yeah, I meditate, but not as much as I would like. And it's something that I'm actually seeing a lot through these interviews that more and more people are incorporating into their daily practice and seems to be really helpful. Yeah. So before we end, I have one more question for you. How do you keep growing professionally? I remain curious. That's the best thing. And I, like I said, I listen to podcasts. I'm active in my field as a speaker and attending and reading. And just that curiosity is what keeps me 
going? Like, how would I do that? Or that's interesting. Or you listen to other people and you're like, holy crapola, like I would never know how to do that. And then all of a sudden I think, well, maybe I could. It's that curiosity. I'm older, closer to the end of my career than I am at the beginning of my career. And you look for ways to give back. And that keeps it exciting, the mentoring and doing those kind of things. So that's all part of how I can bring my whole self to what I do. And I love what I do. So that helps. And what you do is very important. I want to thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love it. It's about making better workplaces for everyone. And that's really the goal at the end of the day, safe, respectful workplaces. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here, Allison. If someone wants to chat with you or learn about more of your work, how can they connect with you best? So I have a website, Employment Practices. That's practices with an S dot net. So you can reach me that way. I'm on LinkedIn. Just Allison West. Ask, I think, ESQ. So you can find me. And I'm always open for people who are interested in my field or you're an employment lawyer and you want to maybe change and do more of what I do. Happy to walk you through what that's like. Well, I can absolutely attest that Allison is a wonderful person to talk to. I've learned so much from you in all of our discussions as well as in this show today. So thank you so much for being here today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Just such fun questions. And I really appreciate how you took the conversation and drilled it down. That was really meaningful for me. So thank you. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.